I think there's a tension here between what we want to do and what will actually uh, lead to the outcome that we want. It is the week of May 2nd, and welcome to episode 130 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Heather Hopkins, visiting fellow at NSI and former special assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Sarah Stewart, fellow at NSI and executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Charles Carithers, visiting fellow at NSI and principal at Cornerstone Government Affairs, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So Congress is warming up to its role in challenging the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Speaker Pelosi led a codel to Kiev a few days ago, where she and several Democratic members of the House met with President Zelensky. Uh, also, President Biden has asked Congress for another $33 billion in military, economic and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. So it seems to me like we're getting to the maybe what could be called the congressional phase of this uh, this conflict. Charles, want to go to you first. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. What is what's your assessment of Speaker Pelosi? Pelosi's trip to Kiev over the weekend. And I'll start this off with a, with a little bit of fire. I noticed she used the opportunity to take a few shots at her Republican colleagues for not being there with her. What are your thoughts? Yes. Yeah, so um, first, uh, I, I would just like to, to state that um, this is uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit um, to Ukraine, uh, more particularly uh, meeting with um, President Zelensky. It, it's the highest U.S. official that that's visited um, the country since um, the Russians um, crossed the border and illegally begun their military campaign. Uh, so my, my initial thoughts are, you know, um, Speaker Pelosi shored up support from the United States government to Ukraine um, and its fight for democracy and to defend defend its homeland. Um, what's really, really interesting is, as you as you indicated, is the, the, the shots that she took at Republicans. McCarthy and McConnell, they, they're going to have to, you know, um, yeah, explain, you know, why they have not visited yet and why like be to to the punch, so to speak. Uh, you know, it, it, in our political atmosphere, every every politician now, you know, looks for an opportunity to kind of um, take a shot at, at, at the opposition. Right. But one has to honestly ask the question, ask the question is why? You know, um, why ha- has there not been a visit from the Republican Party at that level um, to to Ukraine, there there was a, a visit last month by some members of Congress. But you know, having Nancy Pelosi, you know, the Speaker of the House, um, visit uh, war torn Ukraine, um, you know, speaks volumes. Um, and of course, you know, she had some very 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 powerful members of Congress from the Democratic staff visit. You know, Adam Schiff, who is a chair of, of HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee. Uh, intelligence and um, Gregory Meeks, who chairs uh, HVAC House Foreign Affairs Committee. I think the the, the nugget outside of um, Speaker Pelosi criticizing her Republican counterparts is, you know, she shored up, you know, support for Ukraine. I think it's unanimous, irregardless of party affiliation, that there's wide support, almost unanimous support for the Ukraine Ukrainian um, government. Um, What's going to be real interesting is to see how this $33 billion in additional funding that the president has requested to Congress to support uh, Ukraine, how this shapes out, right? 
because they're they're uh, they're members of the Democratic Party, which want to tie this into um, additional COVID funding, right? And of course, you know, um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of pushback, not just from the Republican Party, but from also fellow Democrats a, 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 as well. That is an excellent segue, Heather. First of all, Heather, welcome to the podcast also. Heather, this is an excellent segue into the request from the Biden administration for $33 billion. I think to a lot of folks, that seems like a lot of money. Uh, the number in my head for whatever it was worth was $100 billion, that at some point uh, but when the, before this thing is over, we, the U.S. Congress will have spent $100 billion on Ukraine. The 33 added to the 13 from before gets us to about half of that. What are your thoughts about how this will be received by Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill? Well, first, Les, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here with you guys today. Um, and just to what, just to note back to Charles's point, um, Leader McCarthy did lead a bipartisan delegation over to Poland back around the uh, April 10th. So to visit with the troops and to talk with the, um, the, the humanitarian aid and the refugees that were going there into Poland and to thank the, uh, the Polish leaders for all that they were doing. So there is bipartisan support trying to find both sides, trying to go over to our, our NATO allies and to the area to, to shore up um, support that the administration is, is also uh, bringing in. So as you said, $33 billion, um, asked by the president uh, last week. It's a big number. And um, and I think that was, you know, Senator Thune even said I, it is an eye popping number to him uh, to know that only 13 billion went barely two months from the last last two months of this. Um, it, it, and having spent a lot of time over my career working supplemental requests for um, contingency operations. It's a hard thing for the administration to put together, to put up to Congress, and it's a hard thing for Congress to begin to uh, put their arms around um, with many different competing um, requests at the same time. Just to sort of put that number in a little bit of comparison and and breakdown, um, you know, the, the administration is sort of expecting this $33 billion to go about five months um, and 20 billion of it, 20.4 billion of it is for security assistance and about 8.5 is for economic assistance for the Ukrainian area, for the, the folks in Ukraine to keep the government up and running. And then about 3 billion is for actually humanitarian needs, some of which then starts to talk about um, that that three billion in humanitarian also starts to go a little little bit domestic for audiences when you're talking about um, the Defense Production Act and job, you know, looking at bolstering some of the sanction support and bolstering also some of the direct food support um, and balancing some of the offsets here in, in the states. So I think it will be an interesting debate as they um, move this forward within Congress. Um, there has been good bipartisan support in Congress, and um, I think there and Senator Schumer has said he wants to make this a priority, but less, as you know, Senate floor time is precious. And um, I, I think that the Congress needs to do it at least an overlook of what is going into this and this package and, and what is it, um, where is it going to go? I think the White House was smart. Um, they brought back a veteran um, of, of sort of conflict uh, oversight general, Lieutenant General Terry Wolf, um, who I served with on the National Security Council staff way back when. They brought him back to sort of be the, the coordinator on the intern on the national security staff to oversee uh, the assistance program. And I think he's a, he's a 
he's a fair broker. He's a good, he, he understands the domestic and the, the extra, the international audiences. So I think um, he will, he's a good addition to adding some oversight to where the money goes um, and making sure it is a priority. Uh, you know, the, they also just announced today that the first lady, uh, Joe Biden is going to be going over to Romania and Slovakia, May 5 through 9, to visit with U.S. service members and displaced Ukrainian parents and children. So that and that's coming over the Mother's Day Day holidays. So I think the White House is um, gearing up for what needs to be done to get a package. And Congress is gearing up this month to to do its due diligence and oversight of that package. It's a good sign. I think uh, I saw Mike McCall, who's the ranking Republican on House Foreign Affairs Committee this weekend. Uh, as soon as he kind of heard the the shot from Pelosi against Republicans, which, by the way, I didn't, didn't really bother me at all. But as soon as he heard that shot, he said, well, that's fine. I hope if I were the speaker, I would call the House back in session this week and pass the supplemental now, which I thought, you know, great. Let's get a competition between Republicans and Democrats to see who's more pro-Ukraine. That would be a would be a terrific thing for our political system to produce. Sarah, I want to ask you about uh, economic aid. I think it's kind of the untold story of what Ukraine needs from the West. President Zelensky said several days ago, Ukraine needs $5 billion a month to pay its bills, to pay for its soldiers, its doctors, its nurses, uh, the basic functions of government. Their economy has been destroyed by this invasion. They can't export anything. Uh, Their agriculture sector is is demolished. Um, How realistic do you think it is for the West to be able to sustain Ukraine over, let's say, a year or two year long conflict at that rate of, of $5 billion a month? Yeah. No, thanks, Les. This is a great question. And I think there's a tension here between what we want to do and what will actually uh, lead to the outcome that we want. Um, Certainly, I think that the U.S. and and other key partners need to be responsive to this request, whether it gets to $5 billion a month or not. um, You know, I'll leave that to the experts to sort of figure out well, and I think that they definitely need uh, partners coming coming to their assistance right now. What worries me and gets me to this point about what is desirable versus what is you know what is the intent, what is the actual outcome, is that at the same time that the U.S. is considering an aid package and others are thinking about this, we still have a huge amount of money that is going to Russia through its energy exports to the to the EU. Um, I was reading today that there's uh, since the war started, 46 the EU has purchased 46 billion dollars worth of energy supplies from Russia. And so we've got to be thinking about how do we both make any aid dollars to Ukraine uh, go as far as they can, but at the same time that we are also working to ensure that the EU is not continuing to fund Russia's war effort. And of course, this is not the EU's intention. They are really, you know, kind of caught over a barrel here. Um, But I think a couple of a couple of things come to mind. You know, number one, have we really exhausted our full, you know, leverage with OPEC? Because by keeping the supplies tight, the prices are so high, and that is only keeping the amount of money going to Russia, you know, even even higher, right? For for its energy, um, even if 
you took Italy and Germany out of the equation, which are the top two importers of Russian energy, China's still there. And so with oil and gas prices high, uh, Russia's still got money coming in. So we've got to figure out a way to get the prices, the prices down. Um, and secondly, um, and this is not talked about as much, um, but I think that there is a lot of a lot of work being done and commendably so to figure out how to wean the EU off of Russian energy. The U.S. is jumping in there and as are others. But one thing that I haven't heard of is the EU right now has tariffs on certain environmental goods and technologies that could make its uh, that could really help with energy efficiency. So I think that the U.S. should be talking with the EU about getting some of those those trade barriers down to open up uh, so that EU companies can start buying the technology that they need to help with some of this energy efficiency, which is you know just going to go a long way to helping them meet their goals of becoming more self-sufficient. Free trade between free countries. I love it. Charles, Heather, let's let's uh, flex a little bit to the situation on the ground in Ukraine, where, of course, the Russians are uh, have changed their strategy of, you know, massive invasion of the whole country to this focused effort along uh, the northern coast of the Black Sea. Uh, they're trying to build this land bridge from Donbass to Crimea and beyond. If if that works uh, and it and it just may well uh, in fact, be effective. The next, the next uh, country there is Moldova. Moldo- Moldova already has a certain number of pro-Russian elements within it, whether they were uh, native or imposed from without. Uh, I'll leave it to experts to decide. But Transnistria, this region of Moldova that uh, tends to be pro-Russian, has already got uh, some kind of provocative acts happening as if the, the Russian invasion of Moldova is imminent. How, do, how would that kind of perspective event, the Russians going into Moldova, change the calculus for the United States and the West on its commitments regarding this conflict? Right now, NATO has stayed out. Ukraine's not a NATO country. Moldova's not a NATO country. They both look to the West. If Russia, in fact, goes into Moldova the way it went into Ukraine, is that is that going to necessitate a change in strategy from Washington and other NATO countries? countries. Charles, I'll let you go first. You know, uh, I'm outside of government, but if I had to venture a guess, I'd say most likely. Um, You know, Moldova is, you know, right on the border of of another NATO country, Romania, right? And President Putin, you know, longs for vestiges of the former Soviet Union, right? And I think uh, Moldova claimed its independence maybe like uh, 92 or 93. If if for some reason um, Russian forces spill over to Moldova, I, I, I honestly think we will, United States, other European countries, um, those with NATO, those with those not in NATO, have to take a, a real long look in the mirror because Ukraine is being devastated right now. I mean, there's going to be almost no Ukraine to come back to, right? We're, we're probably looking at five to six million refugees fleeing fleeing Ukraine. The, the infrastructure is completely, completely gone. Uh, roads, uh, bridges, electricity, gas, running water. If that expands to Moldova, you know, we're going to have to, you know, look ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, you know, what could we have done to stop this or help mitigate this? Uh, we we can't allow an, 
an individual such as Vladimir Putin, who has absolutely zero regard for human life. Uh, you know, we've seen this in Syria. We've seen, we've seen this in Chechnya. Um, you know, we've seen it in, in Ukraine with the systematic targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure. We can't allow this to spill over into another country, right? So I, I think that the United States government and our allies in, in, in supporting Ukraine are going to have to, to do something to include considering um, either uh, boots on the ground, peacekeeping forces, or, um, or you know, an, an aerial campaign. Because, you know, in, in another, another invasion of another sovereign country is, is unacceptable. One, one was not acceptable. Two, I mean, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, what could we have done? Heather? Charles, spot on. What could we have done? I mean, we're, we're now entering sort of month three of, of this hideous invasion. Of just, and we're, we're sitting at home in our comfortable houses watching this and watching this happen. And we've watched, you know, thousands of civilians to be killed and five point, you know, just murdered and slaughtered and 5.5 million um, fleeing the country of Ukraine. And to your point, Charles, there, there's not much that's going to be there to come back to from an infrastructure standpoint. And, you know, I, I've continuously asked myself over the over these last few months, if not us, the United States, then who? Who, who else? That is what we have a long history of doing what is right and, and standing up for people that can't stand up for themselves. And, and the world is watching us. And so with Russia being as aggressive as they are with one country to start to spill it over into another, we, we really will have to do some, some strategic thinking of, of what is it that we want to be standing for in, when this is all, all said and done. And to sit by the sidelines, I, I don't think that's, that's a place we want to be in history. Lesser, if I may, you know, we have to draw some lines in the sand here, right? Um, our... You know, our, our politicians in, in, in Washington, uh, I think that there's an opportunity here for them, you know, to to tell Vladimir Putin that, you know, uh, enough is enough. You know, if, in fact, you cross into Moldova, there are going to be some some dire consequences. And I'm, and I'm not talking sanctions here. I, I honestly think there has to be. Um, uh, some military game plans, some military strategizing in play here, uh, be, because we we've seen the the, the sanctions in Russia uh, have not stopped systematic targeting of, of civilians, right? Um, and so, what's to what's to stop you know President President Putin from claiming territory of, of an empire that has long gone? Sarah, we call this uh, podcast fault lines because we try to find the difference between Republicans and Democrats on uh, issues of foreign policy and national security. We're not really finding one right here because uh, I think we should be positioning U.S. and NATO troops in Moldova right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm more of the mind. Maybe this is the difference, Charles. And I don't know if it's one of, of if it's all that categorical of a difference is instead of saying something, let's do something. Let's send our folks there. Let's indicate that we're going to stand with Moldova and that this is, you know, there's there's nothing further here for the Russians. Sarah, do you uh, I want to throw it to you as our last chance for finding some kind of fault line on this issue. I'll play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, which is just to say, you know, there is a real risk here of going up against uh, Putin and, and, and causing further escalation. 
Um, so, you know, I think we've got to send the right signals. Um, I think it's complicated and we don't want, you know, we don't want Russia to, to, to take a step that, you know, kind of brings it to the next level, whether it's chemical weapons or nuclear weapons or, or other things. So I think we've got to be careful on that, but we've got to be sending the right signal. So that's, that's like, uh, you know, a, not really a fault line, but just, you know, trying to give another perspective. <laughs> Yeah, not a lot of tremors uh, on this one. I think we're all in similar place. All right, let's talk about the second big topic uh, for this week's podcast, which is this new agreement between Japan and New Zealand. A few days ago, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern signed an agreement to share intelligence and make other mutual security commitments. Sarah, how much of this agreement is about the South China Sea and uh, mutual concerns between New Zealand and, and Japan about uh, China's aggression there. And how much of this is about China's new security arrangement with the Solomon Islands that we talked about a few weeks ago here on this podcast? I think all roads lead back to China on this one. Um, I think that you've already seen, you know, more and more alliances being made and existing alliances being deepened. And I think we're going to see more of that. Um, you know, we have largely been asleep at the wheel um, in terms of countering China's influence, growing influence in Africa, Latin America, and the South Pacific. The Solomon Islands security agreement um, with China is, is both troubling and not surprising. Um, we saw the Solomon Islands uh, two years ago with Kiribati change its diplomatic recognition from from Taiwan to to mainland China, and that should have you know really started alarm bells ringing. This new uh, you know security pact that is not going to ever you know go beyond the occasional ship at a port. I mean that. I think we can all agree that that's probably not where this ends. And so, you know, for Japan and New Zealand and Australia and everybody else in the Indo-Pacific and beyond, I think that this is a wake up call and it's time to, you know, really double down on working with like-minded partners. So I do think that this is, is a combination of all of those things and showing strength among other partners in that area. Heather, uh, how does how does Taiwan fit into all of these new security arrangements that are kind of growing up organically in the region? I'm thinking of the Quad, which is the U.S., India, Japan and Australia, uh, the new AUKUS agreement, which brings the Brits in with the Americans and the Australians. Uh, of course, the French, uh, you know, everyone's having to uh, uh, hold their hand a little bit because of that agreement. But how does how does Taiwan itself as a as a nation state fit into this this growing constellation of kind of networks that are are rising to meet the challenge of China? I think, you know, ta- Taiwan is it, it, it is the linchpin in, in a lot of this. And Taiwan has been sitting there um I think watching what's been happening in the in the UK, Ukraine Ukraine Russia uh, conflict as well as a as a good example of what what could happen um, and 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 who's going to stand with with Ukraine when when Russia's invading and so who's going to stand with Taiwan when and if China decides to invade and so it it, it is the, these agreements sort of help to bolster that. Taiwan is independent and concept across the board. And 
you know, the Taiwanese are, are, are watching the, the, the debate itself, um, you know, in Ukraine, noticing that the asymmetric capability and against, you know, using small weapons against a large enemy and Ukraine's civil defense and having their, their population rise up to, to defend their country. I mean, that's what they're sort of hoping is going to happen and instill in their country. So as, as Japan and New Zealand and others sort of bond together uh, to create additional allies against the, the as, as Sarah said, all roads sort of leading back to China, and, and what are they looking to take over next? Um, we, we should keep our eyes, eyes open. Uh, I mean, I, I, heavens, I went to an IRI event uh, just recently before uh, or last fall. And, and as different uh, authoritarian regimes are taking over other smaller countries, while, while Taiwan wasn't on the list of things to talk about, Every single person that got up to the podium talked about it as an example, Taiwan being that example. And we need to keep, we cannot take our eyes off of that. Charles, I want you to put on your Intel nerd hat and um, policy nerd hat and talk to us about this Intel sharing agreement between Japan and New Zealand. New Zealand, of course, is one of the five eyes countries where the U.S. shares, the, from what I understand, the highest level of intelligence uh, with New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the U.K., and the United States. How, how does this agreement between New Zealand and Japan impact that? And how much does this matter directly to the United States? Yeah, so um, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity here. I, I first joined the intelligence community back in a 2000, January 2008. And when you go through your 101 training to be an intel analyst, you you learn about your allies, you learn about what, what you can release or rel, um, and you learn about Five Eyes, which started, oh, I want to say, either during or shortly after the Second World War. And it, it's information that is releasable to foreign countries while still protecting um, what we really, really treasure in the United States government are sources and methods, right? Uh, I believe, given the recent uh, recent events, uh, the rise of China, uh, I think you know um, New Zealand, Japan are, are right to uh, to share information at their relative classified uh, levels, and I, I think it's to you know the the increase of our of our safety and security overseas and, and at home. If we bring in, you know, um, the Japanese to someone called like a six eye, right? Because, you know, we're not only do we have, you know, sources and methods um, and, and intelligence throughout the, throughout the globe. So does the, the, the Japanese, right? And they have really, really, really rich access to that portion of the world. So I think an exchange of, of, of that type of classified information while both protecting, you know, sources and, and, and methods uh, could be uh, could be fruitful and you know help ensure the the, the safety of our nation and, and our allies. I think it's to um, the the benefit of, of Japan and New Zealand for them to you know have that 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 rich that rich security cooperation because as as we see throughout the globe the the, the sharing the exchange of information uh, I think is is paramount to each particular nation's um, national security and there's a way there's a way to share this information. While, while protecting your sources and methods. So I, I think in the long run, I think this could be a, a good thing, could be a positive thing. And I'm looking forward to to um, to see what comes of this. And just some for everyone's awareness, there's really, you know, just two individuals that can bring in 
um, uh, another country to uh, the five eyes to make it six eyes. It's uh, the president of the United States and the, the, the director of national intelligence. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that those conversations uh, have taken place at, at, at those levels at some point. How much, let me just kind of ask a follow up, Charles, to your understanding, how much of this is going to mean a change in Japan's self-defense posture? You know, they've they've kind of artificially limited themselves because of the legacy of World War Two and the relationship with the U.S. They've they've shown a lot of restraint in, in how robust their defense spending is and their capabilities and that kind of thing. For that matter, I'm also thinking of of New Zealand, which I think a few years ago. Uh, basically decided to cancel its own air force. How, how much of of this intel sector cooperation do you think is going to lead to, or or is going to be is part of a new national security in general understanding of the threats to their countries? So I think um, so. In, in intelligence, nations of threat, um, they kind of like guide what the priorities are, right? And the priority guard kind of guides. Um, your budget allocation, like where you kind of devote, um, um, you know, appropriated funds from your respective governments um, to set issues. If, you know, if through the the matriculation of um, this intelligence sharing, perhaps, you know, Japan can glean that, hey, we need to um, increase defense spending, um, defeat, um, increase our own internal um, security parameters, so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, intelligence drives operations. It's intelligence that kind of help inform the priorities. So in short, it could uh, have an impact on how um, Japan postures itself defensively um, and where it um, where it puts its funds. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing how much uh, uh, China's behavior in the world is really galvanizing folks that would otherwise not have a ton of things in common to, to collaborate together against what they see as a, as a common threat or a potential common threat. Um, all right, let's flip to uh, the final segment of the podcast where we each talk about an issue or an event that we're following. It's not necessarily in the headlines. Heather, uh, I'm going to go to you first on this one. Thank you. As we've sort of spent today talking about the war in Ukraine and watching uh, the Ukrainians fight and die for their country. We're we're less than 30 days out now from Memorial Day, where we as a nation recognize our uh, men and women in uniform who have died in service to our country uh, in in wars overseas, uh, or wars over the years, ever since going back to the dating back to the Civil War, um, and it and. You know, most of us think of that as a as a barbecue and kickoff to summer day, but it, it actually has a much more solemn uh, remembrance for what it what has been happening uh, here in our country and for those that are that stand on the front lines to defend it. Um, one of the organizations uh, which was established back in 2005 called Honor Flight. Uh, it was established right after um, the World War II memorial was was unveiled and stood up here in the United States. Uh, this organization, Honor Flight, was started by Jeff Miller and Earl Morse, and they started it to bring these World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans, Korean War veterans from around the country here to Washington so they could have the opportunity to see these monuments uh, and memorials dedicated to their heroic and brave service uh, while they are still with us here um, and, and to honor the, the service and sacrifice that they made. 
It's all been done through private donations and um, amazing volunteers at about 128 uh, hubs around this country. And if you've never been out to see an honor flight come to Washington, um, I highly recommend you go on that website and take a look at it. And in fact, tomorrow, Honor Flight is doing a ceremony down at the World War II Memorial where it is having its 250,000th veteran uh, show up and, and commemorate that this month. So um, if you think about it, 250,000 is um, less than the size of the entire today's Marine Corps. So just take that in, take that into perspective and, and think of the lives that uh, we were able to to influence and share and, and honor uh, their service and sacrifice over the years and, and, and bring them here to Washington to be able to see and, and live out, um, live, live at, at those memorials. Um, the ceremony is tomorrow, May the 3rd, Tuesday at two o'clock. Uh, it's it's going to be live down there on, on the World War II Memorial, but you can also view it on their, uh, through their Facebook website page, www.honorflight.org. Uh, so uh, I highly recommend y'all take a look at that and and just, it'll make you feel great um, to, to remember their service and sacrifice. Thanks. Very cool. Thanks, Heather. Charles. Yes. Yeah, so um, one issue that, um, that I constantly track is the greater need for diversity in national security, um, more emphatically your national security workforce. Um, when I, when my career started at the defense intelligence agency back in 2008, um, my first day walking through the door, it was apparent that there weren't a lot of people that looked like me. Um, most of the people that looked like me um, were either in administrative assistance administrative assistant or um, IT um, positions, um, not to come off disp- disparaging, but there were very few people um, doing policy and forming policy at the senior management level or, or, or above or doing Intel analysis. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I, I saw that um, to an extent when I went over to ODNI where I spent la- um, um, nine years and I had a conversation with, with former DNI um, James Clapper about it. And he said, Charles, please um, um, go to uh, HBCUs and, and ha- have conversations with students. And me and a colleague of mine who um, I attended Morehouse College, she, uh, she attended Clark Atlanta University. Uh, we go down to HBCUs during the job fairs. And we noticed that the job fairs, we weren't really attracting a lot of students, so we reached out to our own, you know, individual networks um, and contacted some provosts and some professors. Said, hey, can we get inside your class for 30 minutes and teach a national security one-on-one module um, for, for 30 minutes of your two-hour course? Uh, and this would be like um, either a day or two days before a, a, a major job fair. And we kind of gave them an IC one-on-one, broad national security one-on-one, but more importantly, what the intelligence community is not and what national security is not, because we have to spell a few myths, right? Uh, a lot of things have been glorified in Hollywood that are just not accurate. Um, and there have been some cultural historic tensions um, with, with certain communities of the United States and FBI's COINTELPRO. So we kind of like, you know, uh, on top of giving them a good flavor of what national security is, what it is not, but also like what a career in national security can look like. 
right? How you can travel the world, how like on day three, day four, after you're done with your training, you're, you're briefing principals, you're briefing senior members um, in, in the military, members of Congress and their senior staff and advisors. Uh, and so when we did that, we also coupled it with um, a, a resume workshop because one thing that we saw the, the resumes outside of DC compared to the resumes within the DC area um, they weren't as strong in terms of how they were structured. Uh, Experience-wise, um, on par, is just they weren't structured how like a government hiring official would normally look at, at a resume. So we held resume workshops. We also held um, job interview workshops, right? A lot, of, a lot of students outside of D.C., they're not used to uh, panel interviews. They're used to like interviewing with one person. So we would do mock panel interviews, um, and then, like, when the job fair came, we saw, you know, ROI. We saw a lot more students comfortable speaking with the federal government in terms of national security. And I, I think efforts such as that need to be need to be um, um, sustained on a much higher level. You know, it's you just can't, you know, go to an HBCU and speak, speak to students and then fall off. I think there needs to be a, a commitment there. And there also needs to be a commitment to um, engage the the various um, um, student councils and affinity groups of, of like these bigger schools that aren't HBCUs. So uh, I, I think it's important that you know the national security workforce really looks like how America looks, because you really don't want you know uh, the same group of people with the same cultural lens looking at our nation's hardest problems. Um, you know, because that really can create an atmosphere of monolithic groupthink. You know, you want disparate groups uh, of people uh, with different backgrounds, different cultures, different ideas and ideologies uh, addressing our hard problems. Well said. Terrific. Sarah. Well, Charles, first of all, I'm so excited to hear you say this. This has been something that we've been thinking about at Silverado, too. And, you know, both increasing diversity, but also increasing um, access to students and young professionals around the country who are just not even thinking about national security as a path and, you know, giving them a path forward. So we've got some really fun stuff coming up. So stay tuned, um, but commend you on that. And Heather it was so interesting to hear what you had to say. Mine is um, less interesting um, from a, you know, human interest perspective, but something I am following from a, from a policy perspective, and it goes back to the issue of Taiwan. Um, the U.S. Trade Representative and the Department of Commerce are working on a new Indo-Pacific economic framework. Um, this is intended to be somewhat of a new kind of trade uh, agreement paradigm, uh, whereas in the past, our trade agreements have been um, a combination of uh, tariff uh, liberalization as well as agreement on all sorts of non-tariff issues. This will not include tariffs as part of the agreement. So market access is, is off the table, but it will be looking at issues um, including digital trade, labor, environment, and many others in a way to, you know, deepen uh, the alliance in, in the Indo-Pacific region. And one of the things that, you know, has been sort of chatter in the news lately is who's 
going to be part of this Indo-Pacific economic framework. And Taiwan has noted that it is very interested in joining. And uh, there's been uh, a number of members of Congress who have pushed for that. The administration has so far been non-committal, but has not shut the door. So I think that that will be very interesting to see you know, how things play out and who ends up actually being part of this framework, either to begin with or uh, as it evolves. Great. So the uh, the issue I'm following is vastly more uh, mundane, I confess. It is the Summit of the Americas that is scheduled to be held here in Los Angeles. Uh, next month, the Biden administration is hosting, uh, of course, all of our, our friends and neighbors from the hemisphere. It is, it is anticipated that the administration will not be inviting Venezuela and Cuba to come to the summit, perhaps even Nicaragua. Uh, the Cubans have done us the favor of protesting the snub before the snub has even happened, which I think uh, is is one of the most Washington uh, insider things I've I've ever heard. Really, that uh, you object to the snub before you actually get snubbed. So uh, I appreciate that on a certain level. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Join NSI for our next event on Tuesday, May 10th, with former Congressman and CIA officer Will Hurd to discuss his new book, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. Will Hurd will share how his approach of pragmatic idealism can offer Americans a fresh start to a country mired in political divides and internal strife. Find out more about this upcoming event and the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Klober for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 